Clovis Chapel is a crusty old preacher who wrote a lot of books a couple of generations ago. And he said, I love to preach on giving because I like to see the generous smile and the miserly squirm. Well, I can't identify with old Clovis on that. I am preaching today on sharing wealth generously, but it's not my goal to make anybody squirm. I do, however, and I've been praying this all week, I do want to challenge our thinking a bit, and I'm praying that God would do that. The whole idea, the biblical idea of self-sacrifice is so contrary to the self-indulgent attitudes in our culture today. This whole idea that you would take a portion of your money and regularly give it away, give back when you've been blessed by God, that just goes against years, maybe decades of habits and possibly even your own family heritage. I heard about three Brits, an Englishman, an Irishman, and a Scotsman who went to lunch together. And each of them ordered a bowl of soup. And about the time the soup was arriving, three flies who were flying around overhead decided to make those bowls their landing pad. And so now there's a fly in each of the bowls. The Englishman, known for his dignity, delicately scooped the fly out with his silver spoon, gently placed it in an ashtray, and discreetly covered it with his napkin. The Irishman, known for impulsiveness, blew on the soup, blew the fly out and half the bowl of soup on the table. The Scotsman, known for frugality, was angry. He picked up the fly by one wing over the bowl, shook it and said, now spit it out. All of it, spit it out. Now some of you can identify with that. Generosity does not come easily for most of us. It's easy for our possessions to possess us. And that's why we need this teaching so, so desperately. Jesus told the story about a rich man who was consumed with self-indulgence. Luke 16, verse 19. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. Think about it. The finest clothes, the best restaurants, the cushiest country clubs, the most opulent home to live in, the most exotic vacations. It was unbelievable. But he also had this homeless beggar, Lazarus, who kind of camped out at the end of his driveway and tried to scrounge some food from his garbage can. As Lazarus was not well physically, Scripture says that when he laid down at night, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, this rich tycoon knew he was there. He was there every day. He saw him, even knew his name, but he could care less. And then both of them died, apparently about the same time. The beggar didn't have much of a funeral. Hardly anyone knew who he was. Uh, they just wanted to be rid of the body. The Bible says, though, in verse 22, the angels carried him to Abraham's side. Now, Abraham's side 
in Jewish terminology or Abraham's bosom in the King James Version was the waiting place of heaven where a place of bliss where people who were righteous like Abraham dwelled. And the rich man also died. Verse 22 says, the rich man also died and was buried. I imagine his funeral was some event. Mahogany, casket, dignitaries present to be seen and pay respects, massive funeral procession, long elaborate eulogy highlighting all the things he had done, huge monument at the grave. But in this case, the rich man did not go to heaven. Verse 23 reads, in hell, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. Now, you know, I'm intrigued. The Bible frequently uses three words to describe a godless eternity. Fire, which connotes pain. Darkness, which communicates loneliness. And death. In fact, in Revelation, it calls it the second death, which means separation from the very presence of God. Verse 25, but Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he's comforted here and you're in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed so that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. Now, let's pause there for a moment. If you're new to the Bible, it's important to me that you understand this. This is not teaching that all rich people go to hell and all poor people go to heaven. Abraham, in fact, who's mentioned here, was one of the wealthiest people materially uh, on the earth in his time, and he's obviously here in heaven. There will be rich and poor in both places. I hope you're hearing that. But this particular rich man went to hell because he had hijacked his only life, his own life. This is the only reason anyone is separated from God. They want to be Lord. They refuse to allow the true living God to be Lord and master of their lives. And by the way, one of the byproducts of that is he had no consideration for this beggar at his gate, for a needy person. And Scripture teaches that at least one of the reasons God entrusts us with material things is that so we could help people, assist people who are in need. I love the way 2 Corinthians 9 puts it. You will be made rich in every way so that you can be generous on every occasion. To sum it up, God doesn't want us to become cisterns that just kind of pool and stagnate. God wants us to be channels. We can actually trust us to be channels of blessing to other people. And so that's what I want to talk with you about for a few minutes today. How Can we learn to give generously, to honor God with our wealth, and uh, to actually be a blessing, a channel of blessing to other people? 
Well, first of all, I think we can give to the needy around us. If you're taking notes, you you might want to write some of these words in if that's helpful for you to learn. All the way back in the Old Testament, God made clear that he wanted the needy to be cared for. Old Testament farmers, for example, uh, when they planted their crops and then harvested them later, they were to leave some grain standing in the field. Why? So that the poor could come and have something to eat. Deuteronomy 15 reads, if there's a poor man among your brothers in any of the towns of the land that the Lord your God is giving you, do not be hard-hearted or tight-fisted toward your poor brother. Rather, be open-handed and freely lend him whatever he needs. That's the position and the attitude we're to have in the Old Testament. That's what was prescribed. But in the New Testament, Jesus also showed tremendous compassion to the poor. He taught, for instance, in Matthew 25, that on judgment day, he will say to those on his left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry, and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty, you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger, you didn't invite me in. I needed clothes, you didn't clothe me. I was sick and in prison, you didn't look after me. And they also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothes or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do for one of the least of these, you did not do for me. Old Testament, New Testament, the teaching was clear. There was to be compassion for the needy. And so the early church got that message loud and clear. And so they had their own welfare system to care for the widows and orphans and those who could not care for themselves. Acts 4 says there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone as he had need. I heard about a church in California that when they passed the offering plate, uh, the person on the platform will regularly say, now look, if you've been blessed, put some in, and if you're in need, take some out. There's some of you I wouldn't trust with that. (laughs) But you know, uh, that's not all that bad of a concept. We're taught all through the Bible to care for those in need. 1 John 3, 17, if anyone has material possessions, sees his brother in need, but has no pity on him, how can the love of God be in him? And that's what was wrong with this particular rich man. He had no pity, no concern for the needy. And the Bible couldn't make it any clearer. We're to help those in need. God honors sensitivity and generosity. So I hope that message is crystal clear. But, but, with that well understood, as we do that, Scripture also gives some qualifiers. First of all, we're to help those who are not able to work. Paul writes to the Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians 3, for even when we were with you, we used to give you this order, if anyone will not work, neither let him eat. How's that for a welfare system? If you're able to work, you had to work. 
You know, one of the growing problems in our country is we have a significant number of people that our welfare system is subsidizing who are able to work but just won't work. And I wish we could get to some kind of, I know it's complex, but some kind of situation where those who are mentally and physically capable of work would would actually have to work or they wouldn't be subsidized. Another qualifier scripture gives is we're to help fellow Christians first. Did you know that? As the church helps the needy, those within the body of Christ are to be the priority. Galatians 6.10, therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and I've highlighted these words for you, note these words, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Fellow believers are to get the priority. Now, you might be interested in some of the ways that we do that. I ask our lead pastors from our four congregations to give some input. There's no way I could share everything, but I just want to give you a flavor for some of the ways in the last, most of this is the last couple of months, but some of it goes back several months ago. So let me just read some. You provided 80 food baskets for Thanksgiving and Christmas. Through your giving, you helped three desperate hurting families with rent payments to prevent eviction. You helped a woman with baby supplies who was going back to school to help provide for her family. She wanted a better life for, her, for all of them. And this included items like a stroller and a car seat and many other things. You donated kids' coats to St. Paul Homeless Shelter in Rensselaer. So many were donated, in fact. We had to give them to another organization, finally, because St. Paul's needs were completely met by Grace Fellowship Church. You paid to cover the cost of a hotel stay while one of our church families had some desperately needed winterization work done on their home. There's a number of children in the home and pretty cold. They had to move out for a few days. You gave $17,000 to some of our local partners to help them do the job of meeting needs in a timely and effective way. You gave truckloads of non-perishable food items. Perhaps even more important, you, Grace Fellowship, when I say you, I'm obviously talking about people from all of our congregations. You provided the manpower to staff dozens of local ministry programs that exist to relieve human suffering for both believers and non-believers. Let me read just a few more. You sent a large truck packed with food and other items to Jezreel International for the Veterans Miracle Center around Veterans Day. Awesome. We were able to resource and assist a single mother mother in one of our congregations so she could move out of a very troublesome situation, start a new life for her and her teenage son, And people in the church, just out of the love of their heart, just willingly gave and funded a whole new start of life for her, member of the church. Through our Christmas tree program, you gave over 1,200 Christmas gifts to needy families within the congregation and community where the children would have otherwise had little or nothing for Christmas. Through all four of our congregations, you know what Operation Christmas Child is? You gave 2,500 Christmas shoe boxes to Operation Christmas Child for underprivileged children. 
That's just scratching the surface. The list goes on and on. Why do I read that to you? Because some of you have no idea that those kind of needs are being met on a regular basis, and it's all because of what you provide. We've reached out to both the needy inside and outside the church, but the point here is you need to know that the family of believers, according to Scripture, comes first. Another qualifier is we have a responsibility to be discerning. Now, I don't know about you guys, but I get a lot of appeals to help the needy. Do you? Television ads constantly coming across, people at the door, knocking on the door, trying to collect money, mailings, local rescue missions, Samaritan's Purse, Crusade for Children, Special Olympics, the Red Cross, March of Dimes, Salvation Army United. These are things we get stuff from all the time. World Vision, Compassion International, the list is unbelievable. You check out at the supermarket, you swipe your card, or at the drugstore just three days ago, I swipe my card. Would you like to donate a dollar or more for this children's cause? Now, here's the question. Which of these things should we support? 1 John 4 reads, Dear friends, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they're from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. And there are a lot of less than noble causes when you check into it. We need to ask hard questions. Is this really a need or is it simply a want? You'd be amazed how many times it's just a want. Is this really going for that orphanage that they're showing or is it going to line the pockets of the televangelist? Will the money be used for food or will it be used for drugs or alcohol? Is this cause worthy of our support or is this really going to fund anti-Christian causes all kinds of questions we need to be discerning as we give i think one of the best ways is if you personally know of a family in need you just reach out on a regular basis and try to meet that need proverbs 28:27 says he who gives to the poor will lack nothing but he who closes his eyes to them receives many curses a second way we can learn to give is to give to our children I like Proverbs 13, 22. A good man leaves an inheritance for his children's children. Now, most parents I know plan to do that. Most parents I know plan to leave all of their earthly goods, be they little or great, they, will, they plan to pass it under the kids when, when they die. But here's how it usually works. We live to be somewhere between 70 and 90 years old, and then we die And then an executor handles that estate and it's divided up among the descendants. Now, I hope I don't need to tell you that's often a stressful time. In fact, I could give you numerous stories right within our church family where that became such an explosive issue that it split families up and they're still not reconciled. It's often stressful. There are accusations of unfairness, and sometimes it's true. But if you wait till you're that old to give it away, till you, you know, you may be wondering in your later years, are my kids really wishing I'd kind of kick off early here so they could get their hands on this money? 
And let's face it, if you wait till you're 80, 90 years old, you know, maybe till you pass away, hey, guess what? Your kids are usually 50, 60 years old, and often they're financially independent, and they don't need it at that point. Now, they can always find a way to use it, of course. But they need it at a different time in their lives, when they're starting a family, when they're trying to establish a home. Now, you have to be careful if you give when they're younger, don't you? Because you don't want to encourage sloth, but children need money at an earlier time in their life, when they're just kind of getting started in their jobs and with their families. In researching for this message this week, I googled an article from Time Magazine, March 26, 2015. It's in the business section. Citing a new survey on the matter, author Martha C. White states, and I quote, three out of four young adults who recently bought their first home needed their parents' help to afford the down payment, closing cost, or other expenses. 75% needed their parents' help. So if you give to your children in the earlier years, you can enjoy watching the benefit of that. And it can also be a tax advantage. You can give up to 14000 It's always increasing. Last I checked, some about a year ago, it was $14,000 you can give per child without them having to pay inheritance tax. So what I'm suggesting is that some of you with abundant resources may need to have some strategic conversations. You may need to sit down and have some wise and frank talks about the transference of funds, where it's going to go, what it would go for. Somebody said, do your giving while you're living. Then you're knowing where it's going. But you've got to strike a balance, don't you, parents? I mean, I want to be clear. I think it's a big mistake if parents don't allow their children to struggle. Did you hear that? Big mistake. Your children need to know what it's like to struggle. But on the other hand, I think parents make a mistake when they don't offer assistance in significant purchases when they're able to provide that. And somewhere in there is a balance. One of the better gifts you can give to your children is to train them to be good stewards of their own money early in life. I've been encouraging you to read this little book here, and one of the lessons in here is that if you just dish out money indiscriminately to your kids, you may not be serving them well. On page 134, Truett Cathy writes, one of the saddest lottery winners winner stories I've heard was about a grandfather who won $314 million on Christmas Day lottery. And on Christmas Eve, two years later, he buried his granddaughter who had died of a drug overdose. The television show 2020 interviewed the winner who said that when he received his winnings, he immediately started receiving requests for financial assistance. Thousands of letters He responded generously, giving away more than $50 million to help build churches and houses, to pay for cars. He became a real-life Santa Claus. The love of his life was his 17-year-old granddaughter. He wanted to share his joy with her, so he gave her four cars and lots of money, $2,000 a week. 
And it wasn't long before a new group of friends was attracted to her. All the grandfather wanted to do was to make his granddaughter happy. Instead, she started using all that money to buy drugs for her friends and herself. She quickly spiraled downward, and at one point, she told her grandfather she didn't care about the cars or the money or anything she might inherit. Paul, Paul, that's the way we say it in the South. Paul, Paul, she told him, all I care about is drugs. Her boyfriend died of a drug overdose, and a year later, she was dead too. The lottery winner told 2020, since I won the lottery, I think there's no control for greed. I think if you have something, there's always someone else that wants it. And then he says this haunting line, I wish I'd torn that ticket up. I wish I'd torn that ticket up. Christian parents, we have a huge responsibility to teach our kids God's stewardship principles. Deuteronomy 11, fix these words of mine in your hearts and minds. Teach them to your children. And of course, the primary way we do that is our example, right? So many times, kids are gonna learn the most just from the example of stewardship they see in the home. I heard one minister share the true story about how he tried to teach his kids early on to be good stewards of money. And so he decided he'd give them an amount every month, kind of depending on their age, and teach them to steward it well. So his six-year-old got $30 a month, his nine-year-old $50, his 12-year-old about $90. And he said, now, when that money's gone, you don't get any more until the beginning of next month. And so they were given several envelopes to help learn the budget system. One was marked Jesus. They were to give a tenth back to God. One was marked savings. They were to learn how to save. 10% was to go to that. And then they had categories uh, like uh, gifts for others, for birthdays and Valentine's Day and so on. A fourth one was extra clothing beyond what they normally needed, like if they wanted designer clothing or something. And then there were other categories which included like special events. This father said that at the end of the month, his nine-year-old had squandered where, whatever money he had left over at the arcade. And everybody was out at a youth event, and on the way home, they all stopped at McDonald's, and the boy had no money. So he came up to his father and said, Dad, would you buy my meal? I don't have any money. The father said it was really hard, but he said, no, son, you've used your money on other things. You got to wait until you get home so you can fix yourself a sandwich. His dad said, that was not a happy meal. But he said he lovingly stood his ground, remembering that old management principle, if failed performance is rewarded, failed performance will be repeated. That's a huge principle every parent ought to learn. If failed performance is rewarded, failed performance will be repeated. And he said the next month, sure enough, his son had a lot more caution about what he was doing with his money. Now, parents, you may scoff at that. You may go, oh, that's way too rigid. I would never do that with my... You can shoot all kinds of holes in that if you want to. But let me ask you, what's your system? Because I'll tell you one thing, few families are teaching their young children how to handle money. Few young people I know know the value of a dollar. Few of them know the dangers of credit card debt. So how are you teaching them? 
We need to find some way to teach them to be faithful stewards. But of course, the best gift you can give your children is not in the area of finances, but in the area of faith, amen? Right? I mean, if we don't give them a farm and we don't give them a fabulous financial portfolio, but we do give them faith in Jesus and a marvelous example in the home, then we've given them riches for eternity. Thanks be to God. Well, a third and final way I'll mention that we can learn to give is to give to the church, the kingdom of God. In the Old Testament, it's interesting, God commanded his people to give 10% of their profits back to God. Uh, Look at this verse from one of the oldest uh, books in the Bible, the book of Leviticus, chapter 27. A tithe of everything from the land, whether grain from the soil or fruit from the trees, belongs to the Lord. It is holy to the Lord. Now, by the way, that word tithe, that word means literally one-tenth. That's what the word means. And notice it says here, when you give that, it's not a gift to God. Did you catch the words? It says it belongs to the Lord. So we're not doing anything spectacular. It says that belongs to the Lord. So for the Jewish person to bring that tithe was simply an act of obedience to God. And to fail to do so was robbing God. In fact, that's what Malachi the prophet wrote in chapter 3, verse 8. Well, a man robbed God, yet you robbed me. But you ask, how do we, how do, we do that? I'm not getting this, God. How do we rob you? In, in tithes and offerings. And he goes on to say in verse 10, he gives this challenge. There's no other challenge like it in all of Scripture. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing, you'll not have room enough for it. God says, look, I'm giving you a test here. The supernatural will kick in with your finances. Now, we're not under the old law anymore, are we? No, we're under the new covenant of grace. The old law, 10% was the standard. Under the new, generosity is the standard. Jesus said, freely you've received, receive, freely give. One of my favorite passages on giving is 2 Corinthians 9. It, it reads, remember this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each man should give what he's decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And catch this, and God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. I ran across a humorous video on tithing. It's called The Skinny on Tithing. I got such a kick out of this. I just couldn't help myself. I had to share it with you, okay? So can we watch this brief video on tithing? This is a scream. I Give to God by enjoying what he has given me, okay? I mean, do you really think he expects something back? Now, I know there's a lot of people at church that would not understand this line of reasoning. That's why, just to make things simple and not to cause any controversy, 
I like to carry what I call the little empty envelope, all right? You see, when the plate gets passed, I bloop, put it in there like that. The deacon's counting the money. They only know me as the crazy empty envelope guy, but the people sitting around me, clueless. <laughs> I win, they win, God wins. No one gets hurt because no one knows. God knows. Huh? Let me ask you a question, huh? How's your mutual fund? Hey, for that matter, how's all your funds? Ha has the fund left your funds, huh? Has your Dore me taken a W-A-L-K, huh? What if I told you that I knew about an investment you could make that the return would be mind-boggling? And, 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 it's, and it's promised, it's guaranteed. I know what you're saying, there's no guarantees. This one's guaranteed, okay? Malachi 310, So it says in the Old Testament. It says, test me, give to God, and he will give you back. It goes like this, I give this, he gives this. I give this, he gives this. I give this, up right up there. He keeps giving. I can't outgive God. How crazy is that? <laughs> Do I love him? Sure, whatever. I'm just saying, if you give, he gives back. <laughs> I tithe, but just not like in the form of a 10% check per se. Let me tell you what I mean. When I go to church on a Sunday morning, they're selling donuts. I buy some. Boom. That's a tithe. When my whole Sunday school class wants donuts, and I, out of the goodness of my heart, buy a whole bunch for the Sunday school class, boom. That's another tithe. But it's not about me spending money. It's about the smile on people's faces. That, my friends, is tithe enough for me. Case in point, the church was having date nights where we could take our spouse out for an evening, and they were charging $25 for child care. Boom shakalaka tithe. I'll tell you what the biggest tithe was. When I spent over $100 on our meal, and my wife was grinning ear to ear, that, my friends, a tithe. I, w I would like to give. I would, okay? But everything right now is just crazy. I mean, just crazy, you know? I mean, not normal crazy, really crazy, you know? And if after I paid my bills and took care of the things that I need and want, then I would, I would consider giving something, but not, now's crazy. We're, we're, we're going to give later. We've already talked about it. I mean, down the road, we'll be crazy givers, but right now, it's just crazy. Yeah, I have money, that's a fact. But you know what, it's a heart thing between me and the Lord and the pastor because he needs to know what I'm giving now that we have this little building campaign going on, if you know what I'm saying. And pastor, I'd give a little bit more. I'd give a little something, something if you'd have that music minister sing a couple more hymns now and then, huh? Hey, what's this, watch this. Is that a Benjamin? I think it is. Benji likes hymns. Come on, you want it? Ah, come on, pastor, do what I say, huh? Ah, 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 ah. <laughs> Oh, in my life, Lord, be glorified in me. I put money in the plate. Wait, wait, wait. Look what I have here. I hope it doesn't interfere. But that everyone can hear how I give with cheer. That everyone could be like me that is hilarious good job but that is so funny because those attitudes really do exist now that little passage we looked at just a few minutes ago suggests three things that need to be true of our giving if they're going to be if it's going to be honoring to God. The first one is we're to give cheerfully. In other words, the attitude of giving is real important. 
Hey, let me just clue everybody in. Valentine's Day is on the way. Did you know that? Just a few weeks away. And let's say that on Valentine's Day, I I get a gift for Deb. And and when I give it to her, I say, well, I got a gift for you here. I knew you were, you gave me one earlier and I knew you'd be ticked off and I I didn't give you one. I just kind of throw it at her and I, I mumble under my breath. It cost way too much. I don't think that'd be a happy meal either. Because attitude is as important as amount. The Greek word used in that passage is hilaros. We get the word hilarity from it. God wants us to be hilarious, cheerful givers. Second, we're to give generously. Verse 6 said, and whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Some people in the church reason like this. Look, I pay 20 bucks for the ball game, 15 bucks for a movie. And look, if I, if I give God You know, $20, $25, that's really generous giving. But the question is, what is the standard? The the standard of generosity in the Old Testament was 10%. Now, look at it like this. If I go out to eat and uh, a waitress comes up and says, hey, Pastor Rex, she knows me. I assume two things right away. I assume she probably goes to Grace Fellowship, and I know she's going to get a generous tip, okay? I know that for sure already. But what is generous? If I give a $3 tip, will that be generous? You say, well, it depends on two things. First, it depends on the size of the bill, and it depends on the standard of generosity. Here in America, the standard is 15%. So if I give $3 as a tip and the bill is $10, that's a generous tip. But if your family is with you and the bill is $90 and you give $3, that's not generous. In fact, that's, that's more of an insult. Now, God's standard for giving in the Old Testament is 10%. And now he says, look, just give as you've been blessed. And if you've been blessed, Christian, I don't think you should be satisfied with giving 3 or 4% to God. The world may be okay with that standard, but God expects so much more from us. Just, he says, give generously. And third, we're to give expectantly. He says, we'll reap what we've sown. Now, personally, I've never known of a person who started tithing and did it consistently over a period of time who was not blessed by God an outpouring of blessing. When you tithe, you begin to bring the supernatural into your finances. And I can't explain it, except but from experience, that 90% goes further than the whole. In fact, the first church in Owasa, Oklahoma, said to their people, look, you try tithing for 90 days, just 90 days, and if God doesn't richly bless you, we will refund all your money. So I'd like to make you that same offer. You try tithing for 90 days, and if God doesn't bless you, listen, you call the first Christian church of Owasa, Oklahoma, (laughs) and see if they might refund your money. It's worth a try. God does promise, seriously, that you'll reap what you sow. And so 
We'll never learn to give generously if we see it as this burden of a bill we have to pay. Here's the way Debbie and I see it. We put tithing right at the top of our our budget. It's always the number one thing before anything else, tithing. And if we begin to see that as a bill we owe, we're going to be all depressed about it. Grudgingly, we'll give. But if we're going to be cheerful givers, we've learned to see that not as a bill we owe. It's a cute little saying, but we use it. It's not a bill we owe, it's a seed we sow. I grew up as a farmer on a farm. Farmers don't begrudge the seed they sow. sow. Why? Because they know they're expecting a wonderful yield from that seed. And that's the attitude we have when we give. Proverbs 3 says, Honor the Lord with your wealth, with the first fruits of all your crops. Then your barns will be filled to overflowing, and your vats will brim over with new wine. One final thing I want to read from this book. Truett Cathy writes, if I were allowed only one answer to the question, wealth, is it worth it? It would be this, yes, if you give generously. Don't wait until you can afford it to start giving, he writes. Start right now enjoying that wonderful feeling we experience when we share our resources. You know what? I've always wanted to be a part of a church that never hounded people for money. You know what I mean? The roof's leaking, please give. Oh, we got this special thing going on, please give to that. I don't want to be a part of a church like that. That's oppressive. I've always wanted to be a part of a church that just taught what the Bible says about it and then allowed people to grow in their discipleship as good stewards and just give out of the love of their heart because they want to see more and better disciples made. They want to see God's kingdom expand. They want to see the gospel preached. And they just give because they love. You know what? For the last 22 years, is it possible to be a part of a church like that? For the last 22 years, I I say by God's grace, we've come awfully close. We just teach what the Bible says and get out of the way. And you say, well, can that continue, Pastor Rex? The question is, can it continue? It all hinges on how much we love. Because you can definitely give without loving. But you cannot love without giving. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God, may we never, ever let our possessions possess us. I pray, oh God, that we would grow as disciples of yours And keep that marvelous perspective that our life does not consist in the abundance of our possessions. Help us to live in such a way, Lord, that we would so steward the resources you give that you would be glorified, that people would be helped, that our families would be blessed, and that your kingdom would expand in power. And I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Amen. Would the ushers please come forward as we get ready to worship God through our tithes and offerings? If you're